Invest in your leadership and business skills at AUA 2023 with the new AUA Institute for Leadership and Business Track. Join the Institute at the AUA annual meeting in Chicago for an opportunity to grow your leadership and business skills. The new ILB track features seven courses, offering a combined total of 16 hours of programming that will enhance your business acumen, activate your interest in business and finance, and inspire you to become a leader in your practice and the field. To accommodate the robust schedule of AUA 2023, each of the seven live courses will be recorded for access on demand after annual meeting. Resident discounts are available. Visit auanet.org forward slash AUA2023 to learn more and add the ILB track to your registration. The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. Good afternoon, my name is Jay Rahman and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another episode in our educational podcast series with this specific episode titled Modernizing Urology Care, the Current and Future State of Virtual Care in the United States. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Chad Ilimoto. Uh, Dr. Ilimoto is the medical director of virtual care for the University of Michigan Medical Group, um, the principal investigator of the Telehealth Research Incubator Lab, and an associate, or sorry, an assistant professor of urology at the U University of Michigan. He uh, is a principal investigator, as I mentioned, of the Telehealth Research Incubator Lab. And at this level, uh, they do have funding uh, with an R01 grant mechanism from the AHRQ uh, and the Michigan Health Endowment Fund. Uh, he's certainly spoken in a variety of different settings about virtual care in both the private and public venues, and it's really our pleasure to be able to host him and obviously get about 30 minutes of his time uh, to talk about this important topic. So, Chad, first of all, uh, really good to see you. Appreciate you taking the time, and thanks so much for joining. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Jay, and uh, I'm excited to be here and talk about a topic that um, I'm obviously very, very passionate about. That's great. So let's maybe just start off and maybe just give us a sense, uh, even maybe before we get into telehealth, how, how does, you know, it, it's always sort of, I don't want to say it's a path less traveled, but, you know, obviously we all go through training and we learn all the clinical medicine and we, you know, how to do this, how to do that, the biology of this disease. Maybe just give us a little bit of a sense of how did you sort of carve this niche for yourself? How did this become an area that you have focused on and obviously focused on uh, so well. Just give us a little bit sense of yourself. Yeah, sure. No problem at all. I would love to talk about that. Um, I often actually get that question uh, when people find out I'm a urologist and they're like, wait, you, you know, you're a urologist and can you even do telehealth for urology? And actually that's where my story begins. I've always been interested in healthcare policy and I knew that I was going to integrate healthcare policy with my practice um, and research, but um, I never really thought that it would, it would be so focused on virtual care. And that started, that interest started back in 2016 when I joined the faculty at University of Michigan. And you know, we're seeing patients from all over the state. And perfect example, we're, you know, I'm a general urologist here. And so very commonly we'll see patients that have uh, kidney stones. And so I would, you know, look at where these patients were coming from. And they were kind of coming from all over the state, traveling two hours for me to tell them that their stone looks stable. I'll see you mm -hmm. back in six months. And so you know, as I was going through that practice, I realized that there had to be a better way. And 
University of Michigan at that time did not have a very sophisticated uh, virtual care platform. And so I sort of cobbled together um, a system and the payer in the state was starting to pay for visits from home. And, you know, after I did a few of these visits, I said that this made a ton of sense and I started to learn more about it. And, um, and then I realized, uh, you know, the only thing that was holding this back, this thing that made a lot of clinical sense, the only thing that was holding this back was healthcare policy. So what a perfect intersection where I could focus my career on how can we change healthcare policy so that we could um, you know, provide this type of care for patients. And that's, and it just took off from there. That's great. That's, uh, that's great. It's really, uh, it, it's really nice to hear. And I, you know, having done so many of these episodes, one of the really neat things is, is seeing how different people have sort of carved areas of interest in different niche areas that, and I think most of us maybe, you know, as you're going through training or even medical school, you don't even think that's going to end up being your focus. And, and lo and behold, uh, it is. Exactly. So Chad, one of the things that, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on as our audiences. So we, we all know that, you know, COVID-19 pandemic, you know, early parts of 2020 going into the latter 2020, we all, we saw that surge of use of, of telehealth, uh, whether it's video or telephone. And, and obviously that was out of necessity. And now here we are, we're several years later, uh, we're more of a steady state perhaps maybe the acute issues of a pandemic are, are really not in front of us. So where, where have we, give our listeners a sense of where, where have we settled out a little bit? What's the current state, uh, maybe practice patterns, and, and what are the, the, like the policies, both at a state level and maybe, maybe at, a, at a higher level? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think we have come a long way since the, since the pandemic, and that was really the peak of using virtual care for the reasons you mentioned. It was out of necessity for social distancing. And um, oh, and it, it's kind of, it, it's crazy to think when I look at the calendar that, that that was about three years ago. And, you know, over the last three years, we've really seen, um, you know, I would say there's changes in the patterns of use of virtual care, but also a lot of stability. So when we initially during the early parts of the pandemic, about 50% of care, this is across all specialties, was, was virtual. Um, those were the first few months. But in July of 2020, uh, people started to Want, started to want to come back for care and, you know, healthcare systems were safer, practices were safer. And so the demand for in-person in care increased. And um, what we saw over the last couple of years is that it, it's plateaued. And, you know, it depends on what um, payer you're looking at. I do a lot of research and analysis following trends in the Medicare population. And right now in the Medicare population, it's about one out of 10 outpatient mm -hmm. healthcare encounters are through virtual care. And those numbers are a little bit higher in the commercial populations that we follow, um, where it's about one in five, one in six. So um, that's where we've sort of leveled off for a couple of years. And, you know, now that we, as we look forward, I think that people are pretty settled in their ways, but now I can see a lot of practices and health systems thinking more strategically about the use and um, making it available for patients, but then also thinking about how can they make their, um, you know, their practices more efficient and where can it, where can virtual care be put in where they can actually get, see some productivity gains as opposed to the, just the necessity to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and where are we at sort of like a higher level, like uh, policy perspective with regards to uh, telehealth and, and uh, virtual care? Where are we from a government perspective on yeah. that? 
we're, that's a great question. And to be honest with you, over the last couple of years, there's just been so much uncertainty and that's kind of kept a lot of practices from investing in virtual care, just because we didn't know if there was going to be reimbursement 60 days from now, a few months from now. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but that has actually become a little bit more certain. Uh, the, the biggest thing that the biggest milestone since the big um, deregulation that occurred in March, 2020 was the year end spending bill that uh, was signed at the end of December, 2022. And, uh, this, you may have heard about it in the news, it was called the Omnibus Bill, which included a lot of different provisions for many things. Uh, but one thing that was solidified in that in that uh, spending bill was uh, coverage for virtual care for two more years. So uh, for two more years, uh, virtual care or telehealth visits will be covered by the Medicare program and um, audio only telehealth will be covered for, uh, you know, for the Medicare program as well. And that's to the end of, um, of 2024. So effectively till 2025, uh, that coverage is there. So that brings a lot of stability uh, for us to know or for us to you know bank on that uh, virtual care will be covered, especially since most commercial payers follow suit with Medicare and Medicaid certainly is very pro virtual care too. So um, I think we're good from a payer standpoint. I mean, I think the the bigger policy issues, which I can, I'd love to get into with you um, is uh, that there's still we're still uncertainty about the final shape and form of virtual care in 2025. There's a number of different issues out there that still need to be worked out. Um, there's very strong bipartisan support, like overwhelming bipartisan support that that telehealth is a good thing, but the it becomes a little contentious when you get into the details of what should be covered and should it be covered at the same rate and and mm -hmm. so forth. So we'll still need to see some. Um, legislative action on some of those points. Um, but I think in general, very optimistic that uh, for the most part, the day-to-day -day practice of virtual care will be around for two years. And at that point, you're, you know, we're four to four, five years out and it, you can't, you know, it, it's already, it, you know, cat's out of the bag at that point and it's not going to get rolled back right. um, at that point. So I think you alluded to this a little bit. So you sort of brought us up to speed on 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 where we are and 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 you know over at least the next two years uh due to the year-end spending bill you know the, the ability to have telehealth coverage so let me ask you a few sort of you know issue questions and and you know your thoughts and and how we're going to deal with this or what what's currently in practice so what about interstate telehealth and and how does that work and and what are some of the barriers there uh, talk to us about that a little bit yeah, that's, that's a really good question. It's actually one that comes up quite a bit in conversations. And so um, just for everyone's sake, a definition of interstate telehealth, another way of calling it is cross-state telehealth. So, um, you know, if I'm a provider or healthcare provider that's licensed in the state of Michigan, technically I'm only supposed to practice medicine with patients that are physically located in the state of Michigan. So if that patient who lives in Michigan that I've had for many years um, takes a vacation in Florida, snowbirds in Florida, technically I'm not supposed to practice medicine with them unless I have a mm -hmm. license in that state. So mm -hmm. um, that issue of, and in, in that issue of interstate telehealth is important for those cases, but it's also important for more practical reasons too. So um, we're in Southeast Michigan, our university. And so we have a lot of patients that are right across the border in, in Ohio, 45 minutes away um, to the Ohio border. So um, technically, if they're at home, I shouldn't be performing telehealth with them because I'm not mm -hmm. licensed in the state of Ohio. So a lot of practical implications. During the early part of the pandemic, 
um, all 50 states in DC relax these licensure regulations. And the re licensure regulations are at the state level. It's not the federal government, hmm. it's the state okay. government. And so they relax those licensure, uh, basically gave waivers to perform cross-state telehealth. But then over the course of the last couple of years, those uh, licensure waivers, which were often tied to emergency orders of the state, started to expire. And so at this point, I think there's about nine states that have these licensure waivers still in place. But for the most part, we're kind of back to normal on not allowing cross-state telehealth. So hmm. um, that's going to be a big question that comes up. I mean, those couple examples I brought up are real examples. And you didn't really think about it when patients were traveling to you. But when you're, quote unquote, traveling to them through telehealth, um, it, it becomes a big deal. Um, I'll tell you that I honestly am a little pessimistic about that, that we're going to get anywhere by 2025 on this issue. Hmm. Um, people are all over the fence um, on uh, allowing cross-state telehealth, um, you know, especially at the policy uh, on the, you know, at the policy level. And so, and the fact that it's 50 states and 50 states can make their own decision, I think kind of hurting all the states in one unanimous way is going to be very difficult. So, um, you know, I don't know if, you know, I'm, you know, I, I doubt that in the context of this podcast, we can get into all the nuances, but it's not just about licensing. It has to do with malpractice, disciplinary action, insurance, mm -hmm. coverage. Um, you know, as, as part of the health system here, I have a lot of um, healthcare providers that are interested in, and, and they have these cases that make so much sense, like a pediatric cardiologist who does specializes in congenital heart disease um, needs to see patients from many states mm -hmm. in order mm -hmm. to fill their clinics. And those patients are driving multiple states to, mm -hmm. to get to them. So there's these cases that make a lot of sense, but unfortunately, there's still a lot of regulation tied around it that makes it very, very difficult. Hmm. Interesting. Um, what about payment? Uh, payment, payment parity, maybe talk a little bit about um, audio maybe versus audio visual and, and where, where, does, where does this all play out and, and how are we going to sort of find a happy medium with those types of visits and in-person visits? Yeah, that's a that's another big contentious issue as well, too. And so so far, um, since the public health emergency rolled out, um, the Medicare program, and as far as I know, a lot of commercial payers have been paying at parity. And what that means is that if you see a patient in person and if you see them through a video visit, you're essentially getting uh, paid you know, roughly about the same amount. Um, which has been a good thing. And that's been, um, and, and to me as a clinician, it makes a lot of clinical sense too. If I see a patient and I talk to them about kidney stone surgery, um, you know, whether I do it in person or whether I uh, do it through video, it's the same content. And I've always sort of felt that we should be paying for content, not necessarily um, exactly what goes on during that visit. And so the, um, and, and, and to that, if you extend that philosophy further, then audio-only telehealth would, you know, should be covered at the same level as well, too. But, you know, that's my perspective on it. And, of course, I'm biased because I, you know, I'm a clinician and, and so forth, and people view it otherwise. And it's hard to explain, you know, the optics around paying the same amount for audio-only telehealth or telephone calls is, is you know, it's it looks bad. And so it's like you know, people often will say, and patients will say, well, I just got a phone call. That can't cost as much as an in-person visit. And oftentimes the argument that I'll make is, well, you know, there was a, a scheduler that scheduled that. Um, there were some tests that were ordered that need to be followed up on. There was a nurse that is going to help with the 
um, you know, periclinic care and, and there's still a brick and mortar clinic that needs to function, even though the visit was just done on the phone. So if you take all those costs into consideration, um, you know, it, it is actually about the same amount as a, um, as an mm -hmm. in-person visit. So, um, I think there's a lot of complexity to it. Um, unfortunately the narrative to pay less for video and audio is really strong. So it's, mm -hmm. and, and the narrative against it is pretty complex. So, um, hopefully, you know, that message can get across with policymakers and so forth. And we can, you know, we can hopefully stay at parity, but, um, I don't know where this issue is going to go in the future. Sure. So what, what other, maybe just in the current state, what, what are some of the other policy cha challenges? We talked about cross-state health. We talked about the payment parity. What else do you think is important for our listeners to know about in our current state? Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, those are, those are probably the two, two biggest issues. Um, the, you know, the, the main thing really is um, whether or not, I mean, fundamentally the big question and what's driving all of these policy questions is really about what's going, what's the impact of virtual care on overall healthcare spending. So if if there was no concern about that, we wouldn't be thinking about all these different issues. And so um, the the other big policy issue I think that's important is whether or not there should be some these clinical guardrails around who can you know who can get telehealth and who can't. And those guardrails again are you know, the, the reason they would exist is because of the worry about. Um, excessive healthcare spending. So one good example would be for mental health. There's a proposal um, that has actually been held back with this, uh, you know, with some of the legislation. But it's uh, a proposal to that with for mental health providers that um, you can only do, you can see them through virtual care, but at, at a certain amount of time, like one year, you need to see them in person. And you know, that might not necessarily be built on some sort of clinical evidence that says that you're delivering better care if you see that person in person once a year. It's really built on the fact that um, policymakers, insurance companies don't want, uh, they think it may be abusive if you're only seeing it through, seeing them through virtual. So in the future, if those types of clinical guardrails apply to urology, like you can see a, a person two or three times in a year virtually, but every year you have to see them in person. It, it creates all this complexity and, mm -hmm. you know, as, you know, as a, you know, a person that's you know, trying as an administrator, you know, it's like, it's kind of hard to, how do you create that flag in your electronic medical record that they haven't been seen in this, this time period? It adds so much complexity that most people would probably say it's probably not worth it. Um, I don't want to get in trouble for seeing this person or I don't want them to get a surprise bill. So it creates a disincentive um, to, to do virtual care, these types of policies. So, Chad, what, what about outcomes of telehealth and virtual care? And, and obviously, urology is just but a small piece of the large pie. So maybe talk to us a little bit about outcomes, what outcomes are actually being looked at, and, and maybe urology, but also, also more broadly, um, maybe data that we have from medicine in general. Yeah, so this is probably one of the hottest topics right now um, in every single um, legislation that's passed, there's always some comment about we need a report, uh, we need more data, Medicare program, Department of Health and Human Services uh, need data on, and really the, the, the reason that, that the spending bill didn't make telehealth permanent, uh, but instead only extended it for two years is because they do want data on um, the impact of telehealth on access, costs, and quality. And so um, those are the big areas. And I think that when you look across the board, you'll see 
Um, depends on the specialty you're looking at, the condition that you're looking at. And oftentimes, even if you look at a condition like heart failure and you look at telemonitoring for heart failure, you find mixed studies. And um, the quote that I love is, um, there's a quote from Tim Cook, um, the technology can do great things, but it doesn't want to do great things. It doesn't want to do anything. That part takes all of us. Hmm. And fundamentally in that, in that quote, um, one of the reasons that you may have a heart failure study that doesn't reduce readmissions, doesn't lead to reductions in readmissions or mortality is because, um, you know, it, it's really what you do with the technology and what you do with that data that will make an impact on, on care. And um, so I think that, you know, there, there's, there are studies out there. I think there's a growing literature in this area. Um, people have studied virtual care for the last 15 years, but until 2020, has it really become so widespread that you can actually look at what happen, happens in clinical practice and when it's um, you know out in the wild, so to say. So um, those studies are coming in. Our group has done some work in urology. We've done work outside of urology, looking at it, how often patients are coming back within 30 days uh, for revisits. And um, you know, for some conditions like upper respiratory infections, we're finding that uh, patients are coming back more frequently if they had a telehealth visit instead of an in-person visit. But then for other conditions, some urologic conditions we looked at, we're not finding the same thing. So, um, you know, I think it will take some time to sort of aggregate all these and try to come up with some solid conclusion on the impacts, but, um, you know, it, but it's an important area for sure. Sure. So as we look forward a little bit, what, what are some of the new technologies? Where, where, where is this going to go in the future? And um, I, I mean, I think you highlighted a key point, which is obviously we need data on outcomes yeah. and that's one element of it. But um, what are the sort of technological, I don't know, evolutions uh, and trends that may occur that, that you see coming on the horizon for uh, telehealth and virtual care? Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the COVID pandemic made virtual care, made providers and patients aware of virtual care. And because of that, there has really been an explosion in digital health companies and um, new way and, and different ways of, of um, performing telehealth and acceptance of it. And I think the biggest, highest impact areas in the future, but beyond video visits, is asynchronous care. So being able to um, you, you know, send a send a set of symptoms or um, um, <clears throat> send a picture of a rash, for example, to your doctor. Um, and your doctor replying and, you know, all of us are getting lots of messages already, but it, when you accept that as a form of healthcare and you tie some reimbursement to it, it, that's when you're really modernizing care because now that patient doesn't need to come in. I'm not just, you know, using up resources with no reimbursement around it, but we're actually, assume, we're basically creating a care encounter here and, um, and completing that visit without the patient having to come in. And so I think asynchronous care is a big, big area. Um, and that runs parallel with a lot of things that you see, you know, outside of healthcare. You know, people are, uh, you don't go to the bank to deposit a check. You can do it, um, you know, on your phone and, and, and do it in a way that you don't actually even need to talk to anyone. So mm -hmm. I think there's that. Um, the other big area is monitoring of populations. So that's called remote patient monitoring. And um, I haven't seen a lot of strong use cases in urology, but um, for other specialties uh, or conditions like high blood pressure, diabetes, heart failure, COPD, and so forth, that's become an area that has really grown and it's accepted by 
payers because it, you know, it, it, it's pretty obvious that the issues that occur between visits are just as important as the issues that come up during those visits. So the idea of trying to keep patients out of healthcare facilities by monitoring them is a um, is definitely a big area. And then, of course, I don't know if you've heard of Chat GPT. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> exactly. It's you know AI is getting unleashed in the world. So you know I don't you know I think that AI has a huge role in um, in healthcare, and that may be. Uh, you know, it may not it, it may not be on its own, but I think certainly augmenting some of these technologies that are coming out, like asynchronous care and remote monitoring, that's where AI can certainly play a big role. And I'm sure we'll see an uh, explosion of that as people are becoming more accepting of it. Well, I mean, I think I think your point on this concept of remote monitoring makes so much sense because, you know, when you look at these visits, they're occurring at a single snapshot in time. And yeah. it is simply capturing what is occurring maybe at that snapshot in time. But um, I think as you alluded to, the underlying processes may be things that either don't present or present more severely or less severely. And we're just missing those events because we're just seeing it at time A, B, or C. So, I mean, intuitively, that makes a tremendous amount of sense. And, and really, you're right, the concept of asynchronous, I love your bank analogy, right? I mean, I never batch my checks together or I never you know, wait to go to the bank to make all my transactions. I mean, these are continuous and fluid throughout. And sure, maybe I do go to the bank from time to time, but but not every sort of bank transaction is predicated on in-person sort of interaction there. So I think I think that was a really great, uh, great analogy. So let's talk about, um, you know, barriers uh, and, and maybe talk a little bit about maybe policy and, and coverage fragmentation. I'll, I'll kind of give you a few and I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. So let's start with policy and coverage fragmentation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's a huge, huge barrier. And um, I think, you know, for the most part, uh, we'll see that, you know, like I mentioned earlier, that commercial insurers and the Medicaid program sort of follow suit with Medicare. But all you need is just small differences in 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 payment or pre-authorization or steps that are needed to get the patient covered for these services that leads to just a few small differences that create a huge disincentive to even do it at all and um, i think you know we, we just had a conversation about remote monitoring and it does make a lot of sense for our patients but um, we have to reconcile that with the fact that you know we have a certain amount of hours in the day and we are already inundated with a lot of healthcare that we're providing already. So how do you take that time to, um, you know, monitor your patients with stones or monitor your, you know, intake, fluid intake of patients with stones or other ways that you may use monitoring, like if, especially if it's not built into some reimbursement model that, you know, kind of compensates you for the time that you would otherwise be spent in clinics and patients. And so, um, and, and, you know, if, and it's fine, let's say that, one payer does it, but then if most other payers don't do it, then you're not going to invest the time and resources to develop that type of a program because um, it's hard to, you know, just do it for a small population of your patients. And so that's the practical reality of, mm -hmm. I mean, the truth is in the state of Michigan, um, the one of the largest payers in the state of commercial payers in the state of Michigan started covering video visits from home back in 2016. There was still mm -hmm. no uptake because 
it was just one payer. And so that's coverage fragmentation. That's the definition of coverage fra fragmentation. And hmm. for that reason, no one cared that they were covering for it because if the other payers aren't going to do it, they're not going to invest the resources to get that going. Hmm. What about um, disparities um, and, and sort of access to this technology? And, and maybe it's not exactly related, but sort of the, the broader concept of access to broadband, if you want to talk about that. And, you know, t give us a sense of how that all plays into it. Yeah, that's, a, that's another very real barrier, very practical barrier, too, is that um, the technology is way ahead of the real world implementation. And mm -hmm. so just because you, you know, actually I was having this, I talked to a lot of vendors and um, there was one vendor that was kind of touting their, their, uh, you know, their research. And they said that, um, you know, they're investing a lot in AI to make these alerts for this remote monitoring program more and more sophisticated. And I was like, well, what about the research in, in terms of getting patients to use it? <laughs> because mm -hmm. like, you can get very sophisticated, but if a patient is not interested in using it or doesn't have the capacity to to use it, then you're you're never even going to you know get past the you know the start line. So, um, and that's that's a real issue. We've, there's numerous studies that I've looked at disparities, the digital divide, um, and you know simple things like language barriers that may uh, inhibit the use of these types of technologies. Asynchronous care. If you can't quite understand what's being asked, then you're not going to use it. So. Um, I think that just needs to be a, a lens that every rollout of virtual care, you know, you, you look through that lens to make sure that that technology is accessible for every one of your patients. Because, um, you know, if you don't use that, if you don't use that type of lens, it doesn't matter how fancy your tech is. Mm -hmm. um, it's just not going to be used. It's not going to be clinically useful. And, and maybe one of the last things I'd ask you on is um, just broadly implementation and you know, how, how does this sort of factor into workflow for the average clinician and, and how do you sort of juxtapose virtual care with in-person care? Uh, just give me your thoughts on that. Yeah, that, no, that's a, that's a great question. And again, I think you just hit on a, another big um, practical issue and practical barrier um, with, um, with, with, with virtual care. You know, we, we are used to walking into rooms seeing patients completing that visit, walking into the next room and seeing the patient. Um, you know, in a way we use the word patient centered, but in a way, in a way our healthcare system is very provider centered. And so um, it, you have to have a change um, that can, that or makes, you know, it's like you almost have to overcome something that's so simple in order to get people to, to use it. And it's hard to overcome that, that, that is mm -hmm. as easy as it comes. You just walk mm -hmm. in the room and, and so, um, you know, I think that overcoming that workflow change is, is, is difficult. I see it all the time um, in, in my role. And um, there has to be something in there for the provider. There has to be some major gain for patient care uh, in order to take that. And oftentimes, you know, the way that I view the implementation of virtual care is that it, it has to be high impact enough. It can't be, um, you know, just doing a bunch of video visits. Um, you know, it has to be you're doing it in a way that's strategic, that changes your practice, that's in high impact enough that it's worth it because even a small change is very difficult to implement. Um, I think some of the, you know, one, one good example that ties into workflow changes is that um, let's say you have a practice that's sharing a clinic that um, you, know, you don't have a lot of room 
in, in that clinic to see patients, then if one of your providers that shares that clinic is able to do virtual visits from home, the, the way to do it, you know, the way to implement virtual clinic and virtual care in that clinic wouldn't be to intersperse the video visits within person, but actually to block them so that provider doesn't even need to come into clinic. So when you can think, and then, then you've had this secondary gain of freeing up clinic space to see patients, you know, your practice may get a financial gain from that too, because you're able to see more patients that way. And so when, when those types of solutions come into play where you're solving a problem of virtual care, much, much um, higher likelihood of success than trying to sort of build it into a workflow that's mm -hmm. already very easy within mm -hmm. patient care. Well, Chad, that was, that was really super. Uh, really kudos to you. I, I think you're, you're obviously a very, uh, very thoughtful person in this space. Uh, you, you're very eloquent. I think you sort of summarize things really well. And, and it was really um, my pleasure uh, as a host and our pleasure uh, to be able to have you on, on this podcast with us. Well, I really appreciate the time and, um, you know, thanks. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Uh, thanks for the conversation. It was great questions and I'm uh, always happy to come back to you. That's super. And to our audience, uh, thank you again for your attention. Uh, for more information, please visit auanet.org university. And Chad, you have a great day. Thanks so much. Thanks.